This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, we have our weekly look at the numbers, trends, and latest news about COVID-19 with AMA's Director of Science, Medicine, and Public Health, Andrea Garcia in Chicago. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer, also in Chicago. Andrea, thanks for joining us again this week. Uh, The outlook continues to improve in the U.S., but Friday, President Biden extended the pandemic emergency that was first uh, declared in March of 2020 What does it exactly mean? Does that seem kind of strange given the declines that we're seeing across the board? Well, thanks for having me back. And national emergencies declared by the president do convey special powers, and and that is why we typically see them. It provides the federal government with legal and regulatory flexibility, allows them to spend additional money and more easily take certain actions, like you said. The pandemic was first declared a national emergency by President Trump in March of 2020. At that time, he said that extra measures were needed to combat the virus, which had infected just over 1,600 people in the U.S., and that number, of course, now exceeds 78 million. That national emergency declaration would have expired on March 1st had President Biden not alerted Congress of his intentions to extend it. I do wanna make clear that this is different than the public health emergency, which is declared by the secretary of HHS and that is set to expire on April 16th, but also could be renewed. If If that expires, does that mean this will all go away? I don't think it's that easy. I know, me neither. <laughs> we can um, help. It's COVID humor. Um, why, uh, you mentioned kind of this special powers issue, why extend the emergency with cases uh, declining so rapidly uh, in states that are you know, easing restrictions? So that dis- this decision to extend the national emergency was outlined in a letter from the president to the Speaker of the House and the president of the Senate. And the president wrote in that letter that the COVID-19 pandemic continues to cause significant risks to the public health and safety of the nation. It noted that more than 900,000 people in the nation have perished from the disease and that it's essential to continue to combat and respond to COVID-19 with the full capacity and capability of the federal government. Well, given that, let's talk a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of the numbers this week. How how low have we gone? And is that uh, consistent in terms of cases and deaths? So the daily average of cases is is just over 100,000. It's declined more than 80% since the peak in mid-January. Hospitalizations are around uh, 67,000 per day right now. That's down 40% over the last two weeks. And ICU um, patients in the ICU have also fallen nearly 40%. We know that deaths lag a couple of weeks behind uh, both cases and hospitalizations. Those are also decreasing nationally, but we're still seeing increases in about 14 states and uh, deaths are about 2000 per day nationally. So still a pretty high number. Vaccination, you know, clearly uh, plays a huge role in preventing those worst case scenarios. Where do we stand with vaccinations at this point? So 214.7 million people in the U.S. are now fully vaccinated. That's about 64.7% of the population. 
uh, 252.8 million or 76% of the population have received one dose and about 92.8 million have received a booster dose in the US. So uh, speaking of vaccination last week, the CDC released another interesting study uh, this time on looking at the effects of getting vaccinated during pregnancy. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, according to that new study from the CDC, infants whose mothers received two doses of an mRNA COVID vaccine during pregnancy uh, are less likely to be admitted to the hospital for COVID in the first six months of their life. Overall, the researchers found that maternal vaccination was 61% effective at preventing infant hospitalization vaccination later in pregnancy, so we're talking after the first 20 weeks, provided better protection for infants than earlier vaccination. Um, although the CDC has long recommended that people who are pregnant, breastfeeding, or planning to become pregnant be vaccinated, this is really the first real-world evidence that we have that maternal vaccination can protect infants from COVID, and that's due um, to those infants carrying their mother's antibodies. Uh, I think this is really important and, and really good news because we know that the authorization of a COVID vaccine in this age group is not likely anytime soon. Those trials that are underway are really for those six months and older. You took care of the nation. It's time for the nation to take care of you. The AMA stood by America's physicians and patients during the pandemic, and we're not stopping there. We're fixing prior authorization, leading the charge on Medicare payment reform, supporting telehealth, fighting scope creep, and reducing physician burnout. It's time to rebuild, and the AMA is ready. To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild. Now, who would have thought about being able to cover children that young through pregnancy. That's a really interesting finding. Um, this is also important given uh, the release of new statistics that show the number of children who are hospitalized during the Omicron surge uh, definitely increased, especially among uh, children who are, being, are, who are too young to be vaccinated, like we were talking about. What, what can you tell us about that? The study published last Tuesday by the CDC compared pediatric hospitalizations during Omicron and Delta surges. It found that at their peak, weekly pediatric hospitalizations were four times greater during Omicron than Delta, and children younger than five saw that largest increase with hospitalization rates that were more than five times higher during Omicron. So, you know, this this information comes on the heels of the announcement that we talked about last week with the FDA uh, deciding not to move forward with the authorization of the Pfizer vaccine in, the, in this age group until they have that data uh, from the three-dose trial in younger children. So obviously not expecting that at this point until April. Well, uh, vaccination continues to be our best tool. We do have other kind of tools in the armament. Um, new updates on COVID treatments uh, particularly about the pill. So uh, what's this, what is the uh, information there? So Merck's uh, COVID oral antiviral pill received some better news this week. Researchers from India conducted a study that showed more promise for the pill's ability to reduce hospitalizations. That 
studies showed the pill reduced hospitalizations by about 65%. And if you remember, Merck's own data from last year found that the drug reduced hospitalizations and deaths by about 30%. Um, while this uh, pill from Merck has received an EUA in December from the FDA, it's specific to adults who are at high risk. Uh, we know that de the demand for that pill has been pretty low in the United States, both because of that low reported efficacy, but also due to safety concerns. Interesting. Uh, speaking of, uh, of treatments, there's another monoclonal antibody treatment that's quietly uh, been granted emergency youth authorization a couple of weeks ago. Uh, does that also show promise in preventing serious disease like the pill? It does. So on February 11th, the FDA authorized a new monoclonal antibody from Eli Lilly. Uh, that's for treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. For those who are at high risk for progression to severe disease, it's a intravenous injection. So given by a healthcare provider, typically in a clinic or in a hospital, Eli Lilly has noted that the treatment retains activity against the Omicron variant and its subvariants. So that makes it really um, a potential important new therapeutic. We know the federal government has purchased 600,000 doses of the treatment and it's gonna be distributed through the end of March. Um, I think the other important thing to note here is FDA has said this should not be a preferred product and should only be used when there are no alternative treatments uh, available that are uh, accessible or clinically appropriate. And that's similar to designations we've seen both to the Merck COVID pill and also of course, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Well, the big issue with these uh, other treatments has been about supply and even in short supply. Um, do we foresee that kind of alleviating, especially since we're kind of uh, in a little bit of a dip here, at least uh, for the time being? That's definitely what we're hearing. Uh, Bloomberg recently reported that the supply of Pfizer's Paxlovid appears to be increasing as cases declined. The supply in the U.S. is supposed to fully ramp up in April to at least 2 million courses available per month. And then we know that full order is expected uh, to be delivered by the end of September. Now we're seeing across the, the, the U.S. Uh, different states uh, and, in fact, the CDC revisiting mask guidelines. What's happening first? Uh, let's talk about the state level. What are we seeing there? So on this, at the state level, it looks like we're going to get to a point soon where there's going to be no statewide mask mandates, specifically on the U.S. mainland. The two states that had mandates for masks in place still, New Mexico and Washington State, announced Thursday that they would be dropping their mask requirements. So that really leaves Hawaii as the only state with mask requirements that has yet to announce any plans to relax them. And then Puerto Rico, the, U, the largest U.S. territory, they have yet to announce any changes to their masking requirements. But I would note that every state is really approaching this differently, and some are um, rolling back those requirements in certain indoor spaces. Uh, some have set a timeline for removing mask requirements, and others are leaving mask requirements in place in certain settings, such as in schools. It seems like the states are kind of out in advance of the CDC uh, on this particular thing. Is the CDC going to weigh in with um, guidance of its own? Yeah, we're, we're expecting that. We know both CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics have continued to support masks in schools as an important way to keep 
schools open safely. And some states have left that decision on masks to the local districts. And of course, like here in Illinois and in Maryland, we know that mask requirements in schools are being contested in the courts. Uh, so that'll be playing out as well. Uh, we do know that Dr. Walensky uh, has stood firm on the need for masking this month based on their current transmission guidance, which guides sort of indoor masking requirements. But she has said that the agency would soon release new guidelines. Um, and that is gonna be based on factors like hospital capacity, not just on new COVID cases or test positivity rates. In a recent briefing, Dr. Walensky said that they wanna give people a break from things like masking when the metrics are better. Well, lastly, uh, any uh, additional topics the AMA wants to hear, uh, folks uh, to hear about this week, uh, one kind of near and dear to my heart because we've uh, talked about it uh, several times in our segments is uh, uh, the passage of the Lorna, uh, Dr. Lorna Breen uh, Healthcare Provider uh, Protection Act. Can we talk a little bit about uh, where that stands right now? Yeah, so on Friday, the AMA released a statement congratulating Congress for passing that act. The legislation will establish an awareness campaign to encourage physicians to care for their mental health. It authori also authorizes grants to establish evidence-based programs dedicated to improving mental health and resiliency for healthcare professionals. That statement uh, re reads that these issues have always been present in medicine but the COVID pandemic has pushed them further to the forefront and the AMA is grateful to the Green family for advocating for this legislation and to Congress for listening. It's a fitting legacy for Dr. Green. It sure is. Uh, uh, that's terrific news. Uh, Andrea, thanks so much for being here this week. That wraps up uh, today's episode. We'll be back with more next week. In the meantime, for more resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org slash COVID-19. Thanks for joining us. Please take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.